Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Welcome to Spy Talk. I'm Jean Meserve. Jeff Stein is off on medical leave. The big news in the intelligence world this week, the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri in a U.S. drone strike in Kabul. After Osama bin Laden's death in 2011, Zawahiri became the leader of al-Qaeda. He is described as one of the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks. The unexpected news of Zawahiri's death has driven out of the headlines for the time being another fascinating story, a potential prisoner swap with Russia. Russia would give up WNBA player Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine being held on espionage charges. In exchange, the U.S. would free Victor Boot, a notorious Russian arms dealer currently imprisoned in the U.S. Boot is an enigmatic figure, and later we'll talk with someone who has met him face to face. With people like this, sometimes there really is almost a split personality. You know, it's kind of, for them, just business, you know, making money, just business. And if people die in the process, well, that's, you know, just kind of a side effect of that business. I've met people like that. I've seen people like that in Russia, especially at that time, who just were so focused on being successful, making a business, exploiting the chaos at the end of the Soviet Union. And if people died in the process, you know, it didn't make that much difference. That was Jill Doherty, former CNN Moscow bureau chief for CNN. We'll talk with her in a bit. But first, let's talk about Boot's operation and what is known about his intelligence ties and intelligence background. Stephen Braun co-authored a book about Victor Boot, Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Made War Possible. I asked him how prominent a figure Boot is in the pantheon of global bad guys. Well, he never had the the power and authority of, of a nation at his fingertips, but he was a master facilitator uh, in that he revolutionized the independent arms trafficking industry in the 1990s, um, which, you know, prior to the, 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 the crumbling of the Soviet state, you know, the, 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 the Russian government and its allies in Eastern Europe pumped, uh, I mean, just endless streams of weaponry into third world countries that were uh, at war or in revolutions, uh, Africa, Central Asia, um, you know, other other parts of the world. Um, But when the when the Soviet state collapsed in the early 90s, a lot of that, you know, those those streams of weaponry sort of shut down. Um, And what Victor did what he revolutionized was, you know, there were others out there who were trying to take advantage of of this this um, uh, you know stoppage of of, of of weapon streams, but they could only source weapons and then they had to find somebody to fly them or ship them or what have you. What Victor Boot was able to do was he combined the sourcing of. Eastern European and Soviet weaponry from the early 90s on 
with a growing consortium of aircraft that he uh, got a hold of, mostly old Ilyushin and Antonov cargo planes. And at his height, he had about 60 aircraft um, that uh, that operated on his behalf, you know, and he he didn't simply ship only weapons. He he was a you know he was a delivery man par excellence. He might fly from one look for say, and I'll just give you this may not have been an exact um, uh, description, but he might have started uh, with uh, sending one of his planes to Burgas in Bul in Bulgaria and pick up um, uh, a load of 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 weapons, fly to Liberia, um, drop off a load of weapons for Charles Taylor, um, pick up a, a, a shipment of blood diamonds, illicit you know, uh, diamonds from Africa, fly those to perhaps the UAE, then give those diamonds to, to a group there, uh, fly over into Belgium where for a period of time where he lived in uh, Ostend, and pick up a new shipment of weapons. So he pioneered, you know, the sort of the streamlined version of arms trafficking. And really nobody else has been able to replicate it because nobody else, uh, you know, in their heyday had, you know, these incredible fleets of, of planes at their disposal. So arms dealing, arms dealing is a famously unscrupulous business, but was he particularly unscrupulous? Well, in other words, did he, did he rip off the people that he did business with? And did he do uh, business with people on both sides of a conflict, for example? Yes, that he, that he definitely did. For example, in Angola, uh, he provided, you know, and this is in the in the 90s when Angola was was wracked by civil war. He flew shipments of arms both to to the uh, government soldiers and to the uh, and to I think it was uh, Savimbi um, who was uh, fighting against the government. So you know there were there were weapons provided to both sides. Um, Arguably, he did the same thing at slightly different times uh, a number of years later. Um, he, and this is when I worked for the LA Times, we sort of pioneered this reporting, but through both our government sources and through a lot of um, air documents and other Taliban era documents that we got a hold of right after the Taliban folded, we discovered that a number of the planes that Boot owned he sold directly to the Taliban, uh, to their military, and they, they then used to, to move arms in and out of uh, Afghanistan, including at least um, two aircraft that were registered in Delaware. Um, so if you talk about unscrupulous, I mean, here's a guy who took advantage of American, you know, the shields of American uh, corporate culture and used it to his advantage. Um, and then several years later, when uh, the United States invaded Iraq and desperately needed to move materiel and other shipments into Iraq and simply didn't have the aircraft to do it, um, they would you know, uh, subcontract with 
uh, a variety of American, you know, military providers and other companies that then subcontracted with Victor Boots planes. And so he flew, in essence, for the Department of Defense for a number of years, even as we had um, Treasury Department sanctions on him. So he was very wily and 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 was was a hell of an operator. And money appears to have been his motivation more than any political viewpoint. Correct. Well, yes, that that is true. Um, we 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 had estimated from sources that he made upwards of six billion dollars from from this um, uh, from his work over the '90s into the the 2000s. But he wasn't altogether um, uh, agnostic. Um, he 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 benefited from what is known in Russia as Krisha, which is um, if you talk it to intelligence folks, it's basically the the, the beneficent roof and and uh, roofing and eaves of uh, the Russian intelligence service. Um, he has long denied that he was anyway and connected to Russian intelligence. Um, but we do know that he was a, uh, he, he came up out of the uh, language school in Moscow, which is a well-known feeder to uh, Russian intelligence, particularly to the GRU. Um, and um, he uh, later was a translator in Africa for, um, for the Russian military. Again, something that has often been the purview of Russian intelligence. And interestingly, when he went on trial in the uh, in 2011 in New York, federal prosecutors um, produced testimony from one of his allies who said that when he met Victor Boot in Moscow in the 2000s, um, Boot's office was in a Russian military complex, um, which the, the, the prosecutors, in essence, suggested that showed that he, you know, still had ties to the Russian government. And I would guess that any work he'd done for Russian intelligence would have given him knowledge of logistics, uh, might have given him the network of contacts within Africa in particular that he exploited in his business dealings, correct? Well, yeah, it's unclear to me if he if he knew, uh, you know, if, if he had already contacts from his time as a translator, which, um, you know, dated back to, I believe, to the to the early, early 1990s or late 1980s. Um, but um, clearly, as he continued to do work in Africa and in Afghanistan, um, he, you know, the, the, the weapons that he provided were sustenance for uh, both, you know, revolutionary movements, for militaries, for, for dictators. Um, for example, um, in Afghanistan, you know, as, we, as I mentioned before, we reported that he had done work for the Taliban. But prior to that, he flew for the Northern Alliance, which he talked about openly. Um, and, and, and as far as we know, that's correct. I mean, we talked to former top Northern Alliance folks who said that, yeah, from basically the mid 1990s through the late 1990s, he flew weapons in, you know, for them. Um, uh, but at some point in the late 1990s, he switched sides and, and, and there is some evidence to suggest that it occurred after one of his planes was forced down by the Taliban and his crew was taken hostage. 
Um, there was negotiations after that, which he took part in. Um, and uh, as a result of those negotiations, um, his crew was suddenly able to fly out um, miraculously, so it seemed. Um, uh, and um, uh, and they were welcomed back as, as heroes in Moscow. Um, but soon after that, uh, according to a lot of the reporters that we had, uh, beginning in the early 2000s, um, boots planes began flying material in to uh, his, both his planes either sold to the Taliban or we're told in some cases acting as charters for the Taliban flew in um, weapons and material into Taliban that you know then Taliban held Afghanistan. He appears to have operated with relative impunity for quite a while. And in your book, you you report that it was NGOs, non-governmental organizations, who first raised the alarms about him. Right. Uh, and in fact, in some in many of those cases, it was they didn't even know who he was. Um, they began raising concerns about what they called black charters, planes that would arrive in Kandahar, for example with no tail numbers on them. The tail numbers either taped over or painted over. And um, so initially, uh, you know, they were, they, they didn't know who was flying in. But eventually some of these planes began flying in and uh, they would find a tail number uh, uh, and it, it would show up flying in another location. Wouldn't you have expected intelligence agencies to be the one to get on to him? Well, they they were, um, but it, it took some time for them to to put it all together. Uh, Americans did not have a lot of entree, um, and so what little they got, they would have to get from whatever sources were on the ground. One of those sources happened to be NGOs. Um, but uh, but after you know, but by the time of nine eleven, it was pretty clear to American intelligence that. Um, that his planes had some sort of clear role. Um, it, it wasn't until they got a hold of records after the U.S. booted the Taliban out that it became clear, uh, you know, uh, how he had been selling planes and it, and his pilots had been, in some cases, flying planes on behalf of the Talibs. Well, well the, really, the, the, the well, the NGOs in, in Afghanistan were the ones that, that played a big role. NGOs in Africa as well. Um, uh, largely, I, I, my guess is because uh, it, 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 no one really was able to connect the planes to a to an organized entity. Um, and 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 I, this goes back to the, the to what I had stated earlier was that prior to Victor Boots. Uh, uh, revolutionary um, work in in creating his his air transport uh, organization. Um, most uh, you know uh, uh, arms trafficking was a sort of a one off, and so a plane might arrive. Um, you know there was no clear evidence that the the plane that was arriving had anything to do with the the weapons that were being you know, taken off of the plane. So it took uh, NGOs who often, you know, were really concerned about um, this, this continuous flow of weaponry to start to notice that the same planes kept 
flying this stuff in. And um, so a, a number of those folks, particularly one guy in, in Belgium by the name of uh, Johan Pelemann, um, began really putting together how um, these planes were operating for a number of companies and that those companies were then interconnected as well. So was it a failure of intelligence that they didn't make this connection? You mean American and, and American and European? Well, I, I would I would suggest as charitably as one could suggest that Africa simply wasn't on our radar screen, particularly after, you know, Black Hawk Down in uh, I guess it was with 92, 93 and the, the debacle in Rwanda. You know, the Clinton administration turned largely turned away from Africa as a place to keep an eye on. And so that wasn't simply an intelligence failure. I, I would argue it was it was it, it was a diplomatic failure as well. So eventually Boot was arrested in Thailand. It was quite an elaborate scheme to get him into custody. It had taken a long time. How do you think the American intelligence agencies are greeting the news of a possible Victor Boot release? Well, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Bill Burns apparently appeared at the um, uh, forum recently in Aspen and was asked about the possibility of a of a boot uh, grinder trade. And I, I didn't see the entire exchange, so I, I don't know what else there was part of it. But the quote was, he labeled boot a creep. Um, uh, I, I don't know if that's the general outlook of American intelligence towards him, but I do know that the just that that elements, you know, high up in the Justice Department and certainly in the DEA, which had built the case against Boot as part of the the sting operation against him, were not happy with the idea of of cutting him loose. The problem is we talk a good game, and other countries talk a good game about not negotiating with terrorists or with dictators. But I mean, you can go all the way back to the Articles of Confederation and the Barbary pirates. And there were times back then when the American government had to send ransom to ransom away American um, sailors who had been seized by pirates in Morocco and Algeria. And you know, you, you go forward uh, to uh, the trade of Rudolf Abel the KGB spy for Francis Gary Powers, who was a U-2 pilot with the Kennedy administration. And just recently, you know, 2010, the Obama administration rounded up a sleeper cell of Russian spies and traded them for, uh, for uh, Russian assets who had been working for Americans and were imprisoned in Russian jails. So on the one hand, it's understandable. You don't want to get into a situation where you're constantly having to cut these deals with Russia or, you know, in several years earlier with elements of militant uh, organizations. On the other hand, we've done it in the past and we will do it again, apparently, when reality intrudes. So, you know, chapter and verse about Victor Boot, having researched him intensively and written co-written co a, a book about him. I wonder if you think it's a fair swap to trade him for Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan? Well, it, it's the minimum. Uh, my co-author actually wrote an, an op-ed recently where he said, just take the deal because Victor Boot is a spent force. And there, there is 
something to be said for that. I mean, just to elaborate, you know, uh, he's been out of the game now for 14 years. He's been behind jail for 14 years. He's been replaced in Africa and elsewhere uh, in the government, Russian government hierarchy by Prigozhin, who is known as Putin's chef, who uh, basically manages the um, Wagner Group, which has been accused not simply of moving weaponry to Africa, but killing people in Africa and in, in Mali. So, um, I, you know, I'm not sure how Prigozhin would feel about Victor Boot, you know, suddenly rejoining the, the game in, in Moscow. But on the other hand, he knows a lot. Um, you know, he knows how the arms industry operates. Um, uh, he knows, you know, especially right now when the Russians are, you know, running short on everything from um, drones to, um, you know, to, to missiles. So, uh, you know, he might be able to use his connections to source material for the Russians in the, in the coming months if they cut him loose. So that's a concern. They may want more folks than just Victor Boot. Well, if that's the case, then should the United States up the ante? Should they ask for Navalny? Should they ask for the repatriation of Ukrainian families um, who have been forced into Russian camps? I mean, I, I don't know. Um, but if if Russia is adding to its request, um, you know, where does that leave the United States? That was Stephen Braun, co-author of Merchant of Death, Money, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Made War Possible. He was also a national correspondent and an editor with the Los Angeles Times and the Associated Press. Coming up, what was it like to meet and interview Victor Boot? I once met John Muhammad, one of the Washington snipers, when he was in prison. I got more insight during that one-hour interaction than I had in months of covering his crimes and his trial. So I was curious what Jill Doherty learned when she interviewed Victor Boot during her tenure as CNN's Moscow bureau chief. First, I asked her how the interview came about. We asked to interview him, but it wasn't that easy because at that point people were saying, well, he's not in Moscow and, uh, you know, good luck on finding him. And then all of a sudden his people, as I remember, got back to us and said, well, actually he is here in Moscow. And we set it up and he came over to the bureau. And I distinctly remember that because it was kind of weird, you know, man is being sought and all of a sudden he's in the elevator going up to the floor where we have our office and we did our recording. He was dressed, I remember it quite well, he was dressed in a kind of a sports jacket, nice looking uh, shirt, etc. He looked like a presentable person and he had also kind of a, um, I'd call it, a, a, you know, a, a quiet little voice. He seemed actually kind of mild-mannered for a person who was considered, you know, really a dangerous person. Why do you think he agreed to be interviewed? I think what he wanted to do was say, I'm innocent, you know. In, fa the, in fact, the big thing that I took away from that was his insistence that he was just a businessman, a Russian businessman. He had nothing to do with any crime, that this was all, you know, disinformation by the United States. And in fact, 
ironically, years later, now that we're talking about him again in connection with the uh, possible exchange of uh, prisoners, uh, the Russian government, in some of the statements by the foreign ministry, et cetera, they've described him as a Russian businessman. But of course, he's a lot more than that. So you asked him, I'm sure, about his extensive arms dealings around the world, which you say he's denied. Did you ever ask him about his connections to Russian intelligence? You know, I did not directly. It was it, he would, of course, never admit that he was connected to that. But it came up, as I remember, kind of indirectly. And there was no indication that he gave that he was connected. Again, he said that he's a Russian businessman. But, you know, I, I take it back, Gene, to those early days, the end of the Soviet Union, the beginning of modern Russia, when there was a lot of chaos, you know, all of those um, state institutions that had uh, access to weapons, the military, intelligence agencies, etc. There was a lot of trade, of illicit trade, of things that normally would be under control of the government. And that's where he kind of um, entered the picture. He had, he was able at that point to create some type of company in which he was taking weapons from the old Soviet Union from heaven knows what supplies, but he was selling them to other countries. And the way he did that was by creating a company that dealt with the planes, the airplanes that transferred those weapons to other countries. And then that built. So th these are very murky times um, but, but I think it's safe to say that you probably could not do this without having some type of intelligence uh, connection. And that probably was the GRU, you know, the, the uh, foreign branch of the military. But it's never been concretely proven. But every intelligence person in the United States and the West that I've talked to believes that that is the case. What about his ties to organized crime in Russia? Did you ask? Did he answer? Again, I, uh, I honestly don't specifically remember whether I asked about that. But that question, too, is kind of it brings a smile to my face because organized crime or disorganized crime at that point was kind of how the country functioned. You know, Russia in those early chaotic days was the mafia or what their mafia was at the time was controlling so much, not only of this trade, but just of business in the entire country. So to, it had to be at that point, I would believe that he had to be connected with some people whom we would describe as members of the Russian mafia. So you said, Jill, that he didn't come across uh, in his demeanor as the so-called merchant of death. Um, how did he strike you? What do you think you saw that might illuminate his personality, his motivations? Well, again, he seemed almost mild-mannered, but, you know, that doesn't really, to me, cut the mustard very much because, you know, anybody can do anything. And in intelligence, a lot of the time people are playing roles, you know, and he obviously knew because he was agreeing to do an interview with a Western news organization that he was trying to get his message out to the world. 
So, you know, just it was interesting kind of to me that he was he seemed kind of mild mannered and he seemed very uh, you know, insistent that he was innocent. But that does not really, I think, have any influence on the reality of the situation. He comes again from this world at that time that was so corrupt and so chaotic and so taking advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union that that to really pin him down as anything would be very difficult. That said, people that I have talked to who do know in intelligence affairs absolutely believe that he was connected in some fashion to Russian intelligence. And I think, you know, that the reason that Putin wants him back may be not so much that, let's say, um, you know, he has intelligence that they want to keep secret. You know, he's been in prison for a number of years in the U.S., and presumably if he was going to spill the beans, he's already done it. But there is that feeling uh, and that kind of approach that President Putin has taken that we bring back our own. You know, if they're one of us, we will bring them back. And I think that that's, that's probably more what's happening. Also, he's relatively young. And he might be useful. It's kind of sad to think about this, but he might be useful in the present circumstances of you know, weapons and Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, which also is being carried out not only by the Russian military, but by paramilitary organizations that have connections to the Kremlin. So he might, he might pop up again, sad to say. And also conflicts continue in Africa with which... Russia has a connection. Absolutely. In fact, you know, Russia is paying a lot more attention to Africa than it ever has been. It's on a number of levels. It's important for Russia. Uh, you mentioned conflicts, certainly Russia and people who are allied with the Russian government, but not directly. So there is deniability are often involved in weapons transfers, weapons sales, and then in kind of a rhetorical um, call it propaganda way, Russia is trying to, um, let's say, establish relations with African countries in opposition to the United States, which it would describe as, um, you know, a colonial power. So there are a lot of reasons that Russia wants to have good relations with Africa. And there's been a lot of communication recently, trips to Africa, et cetera, by Russian officials. Getting back for a moment to what you saw in this man. I've seen him described as exceptionally intelligent, charming, cunning. Were any of those things evident to you? Well, you know, he speaks a number of languages. So his English was quite good. Um, charming, yeah, you might say a certain charm. Uh, he was, again, he was nicely dressed, I'd say almost natally dressed, which surprised me because of the pictures that I've seen of him, uh, certainly later ones. But even at that point, I kept thinking he'd probably have a t-shirt and, you know, be on the lamb, but he looked, he looked very presentable. And that goes with the territory. You know, these are, these are, um, strengths that, and talents that you can use in that type of business, convincing people that they should deal with you, uh, showing people that you can get the job done, that you're a responsible, quote, businessman. All of that is very useful. So I don't think it undermines at all what the essence of what he was doing is. 
Did you find his argument that that uh, the U.S. pursuit of him was a witch hunt? Did you find it credible? No, no, of course not. Because you know what what he was doing was he was making money on conflicts that killed hundreds, if not thousands, of people around the world, and the fact that. Even though he denies it, but there are allegations that he has even dealt with the Taliban and other terrorist organizations. I believe that from what I can understand and from what I have you know, learned over the years, I believe that he actually did that. But there's the, in, with people like this, sometimes there really is almost a split personality. You know, it's kind of for them just business, you know, making money, just business. And if people die in the process, well, that's you know just kind of a side effect of that business. I've met people like that. I've seen people like that in Russia, especially at that time, who just were so focused on being successful, making a business, exploiting the chaos at the end of the Soviet Union. And if people died in the process, you know, it didn't make that much difference. Is there anything else about that interview that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think what I remember about that, they kind of illustrated Russia at that time. The brazen <laughs> uh, statement by the Russian government at, the, at that point that, no, he is not in Moscow. We assure you he's not in Moscow. And there he is on our doorstep. You know, over the years in Moscow, there were many times where there are statements from official people who were categorical, and yet the truth was the complete opposite. And it it seems almost ludicrous, but that that's what the situation was at that point. He really was there, even though they said he wasn't. That was my former colleague, Jill Doherty, who was Moscow bureau chief for CNN when she interviewed Boot. She is now an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and a global fellow with the Woodrow Wilson Center. Jill was in Moscow until a few months ago. In a future Spy Talk episode, we'll talk with her about how difficult it is now to get information and insight into what's happening and what people are thinking inside Russia. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can get original reporting on intelligence and national security if you subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. We'd love it if you also subscribed to our podcast and left us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Gene Meserve. You can follow Jeff Stein, who is currently out on medical leave, at Spy Talker. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope you'll do so again. I'm Gene Meserve. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.